Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, Godzilla Minus One. And if you're worried about spoilers, like any good Godzilla movie, I'm not going to show you the monster right away. Before I get to Godzilla Minus One a little later in this episode, and there will be spoilers there, I want to talk about where Godzilla Minus One comes from for a bit and the Godzilla franchise in general, including my obsession with the original film, Gojira, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. But before we get to all that, a funny story. So the Horror Weekly community is kind of co-creating this podcast with me. Um, I wouldn't be doing it without you all. So, um, of course, I asked one of the questions that I meant to be uh, material for an upcoming podcast episode. Um, when this podcast launched last year in December, so this is our one-year anniversary coming up, um, we did a an episode on the best horror films of 2022. So I knew we were going to do an episode of best horror films of 2023. The community has grown a lot since then, so I knew there were going to be a lot more opinions, which was going to be so fun for me. So um, the mistake I made was I launched the question early and posted it a while ago before Godzilla Minus One came out. And before I posted it, it was right after um, Eli Roth Thanksgiving came out and I Googled like, you know, the rest of the horror releases for the year, whatever was left for 2023. And um, it was a bunch of nothing. It was a bunch of movies that I was certain were not going to be in like the top tier discussion of the best movies of the year. Uh, and the reason I got excited was I thought I'd get a jump on it because, um, as you can imagine, um, when you throw out a question and there's thousands and thousands of replies spread across different social media accounts and like DMs and et cetera, it takes a little while to sort through. And um, what's even a little more time consuming for me is if there are movies that are a little obscure or somehow I missed and I haven't seen I don't think it's fair to you all to do a best of list without having seen it. And part of the fun for me of even doing this enterprise is learning about stuff that I missed or learning how to see it in a different way than I saw it. Cause this is a collaborative effort. Um, so I was like, I'll get a jump on this and that'll give me some time like to balance work and doing this until I can hopefully someday make this the full time thing. Like, um, I'll get uh, some weeks <laughs> head start. So I posted the question early. Um, and the trick here is that Godzilla minus one never came up um, in any of the searching I did for horror movies that were left to release in the year. And I'm going to talk about why that's interesting in a second. But my bad, like I'm a huge Godzilla fan. I enjoy a lot of the franchise, even though I'm not naturally inclined to things that are like comedic or silly. Um, I'm a little more serious to my detriment. Um, so, um, I, but I grew up with it one and two, I just absolutely flat out loved Gojira. I loved everything about it. I've bought it on multiple physical medium. Um, it's just like an experience for me. So, um, 
I, this is it. This was like I I was excited about Godzilla minus one. I had a lot of hopes for it because um, Toho is an amazing miracle factory, and Shin Godzilla is a mini modern masterpiece. But uh, alas, Godzilla minus one never came up in any of the horror searches, so it was out of my mind when I created the question. So I created the question. You guys gave a lot again, thousands of amazing answers. And then Godzilla minus one comes out. I'm like, oh yeah. So then I go see it. I'm like, ah, damn it. <laughs> I fucked up because this definitely is going to be at the very top of the horror movie releases for the year. Now, I, what I was hinting at was let's talk about the second piece of this. There may be a significant number of you listening right now who are thinking, well, that's an easy mistake to make because Godzilla isn't a horror movie or Godzilla minus one isn't a horror movie. And I'm sure many of you think that it is or think it, that it's at least horror enough to be covered on a horror podcast. But I think this leads to a fascinating discovery for me and hopefully for maybe a few of you of how this horror thing is a two way street. And I think a lot of us, including me, some of the time when I'm not being careful, think of it as a one-way street. So Godzilla didn't come up, Godzilla minus one didn't come up a single time in any search I ever did for horror movie releasing to the end of the year. So that means that like the major, you know, entities, especially the ones I search, like Paste Magazine or, you know, whatever, um, they weren't putting it in that list. <laughs> they weren't considering it that way. But as soon as Godzilla minus one uh, early premiered before it's wide release and then it's wide release, guess who was on it from the start? Horror celebrities, horror writers, um, horror like personalities, we're all over it. And this actually is particularly important in this case, even though it's become very popular now and a huge hit. Um, it was originally scheduled for a very short theatrical run in America. And the only thing that was going to get it more extended run is more exposure, more people evangelizing for it, more people saying how amazing it is. And of course, ahead of anyone else, the horror people, our people, you and I, were first on it. Like, I cannot tell you how many things I saw posted in the first few days when people were getting a look at Godzilla Minus One, or even like an early look a couple weeks before its release, the people who are lucky enough to sort of see it in advance somehow, that, that are directors of horror movies or great horror writers that I respect or just, you know, celebrities, people along the lines of like a Barbara Crampton or a Mike Flanagan. And they were out there saying, you have got to go see this movie in the theaters. You've got to see it before before it leaves the theaters. Um, trust, trust us. This is one of the best movies, not horror movies, best movies of the year. And this leads me to an interesting thought, the thing I was calling the one-way street or the two-way street. There are a lot of times, and I get into trouble this a lot this way on the Horror Weekly Facebook page in particular, when I post things that like 
a big chunk of horror fans don't consider strictly horror. Um, and then there's a deluge of comments saying this isn't horror. What's a page called horror weekly doing posting something like this. And honestly, I try to keep it light that this, this thing is here for us. <laughs> like I'm not trying to like lose a ton of audience or send a lot of negative signals to the social media gods. Um, so this thing contracts instead of grows, but um, I made this project out of passion and when I feel passionate about something, I'm just going to do it. Fuck it. So if I really want to post something about like the secret of Nim or David Fisher's Zodiac once in a while, um, I'm just going to uh, beg your patience and hope uh, people can, if they don't agree that it's horror and don't think that a entity with horror in its name should be talking about it. I'm just going to beg their indulgence and promise them that there's horror content coming really quickly on the heels of whatever they're looking at. That's aggravating them. But what happens is there's this this flow from us, the horror audience, the horror fans, of what do we consider horror? Is this thing horror? Is Jaws horror? Is Psycho horror? Is Silence of the Lambs horror? And there's this discussion. And sometimes that discussion can get a little aggravating when it gets really dogmatic. Sometimes it's really interesting and it's illuminating. Like it kind of points out what are the contours of this genre we all love. Um, but that's the one-way street, right? That's us as the consumers of things that are horror movies and TV shows and books and art and music um, and short videos and whatever, whatever, whatever horror, um, because it comes in all forms, right? Like, um, how are we judging it? But in this case... It was the horror people that were on Godzilla minus one before anyone else in force legions of them saying that this is a great thing and that we should appreciate it or um, give ourselves the chance to appreciate it in its biggest form while we can. And what that means to me is that there's two things that happen here. There's the one direction of the street. What do we think is horror? Then there's the other direction of the street, which is what do horror fans like, right? Like, of course, horror fans like horror, <laughs> but there are other things that horror fans like. And then there are things that a big group of horror fans will not like, or maybe like is the wrong world word. Maybe it's more like appreciate or have an eye for. Um, so. In this case, the street ran the other way, right? It was a bunch of horror, and whether you're a horror director or a horror um, artist or a horror author, like when you're consuming someone else's horror content, you're a fan. <laughs> you're just like the rest of us. And they were on it so early and and rightfully so. Maybe it's like a good version of being the canary in the coal mine, right? We're more... Uh, receptive or perceptive of elements in certain kind of things than maybe fans of or hardcore fans of other genres possibly are. I don't know how many like people like like hardcore groups of devoted you know rom-com fans would have like been out there stumping for Godzilla minus one um, 24 hours after its release. I suspect not as many as there are uh, as what happened with us. But anyway, the point of this 
<laughs> mini rant is that in this case, you may be thinking Godzilla minus one isn't a horror movie and fair enough. But the thing I think that is objectively true is that it is a movie that horror fans recognized out of the gate as something special. Now, Godzilla minus one is kind of a schizophrenic movie. I saw one reviewer called it a very, very deep human drama uh, in which a monster movie broke out. <laughs> and I find the schizophrenia of this movie very interesting because it's in the D DNA of the Godzilla monster universe, the Godzilla franchise, from the very start, from the classic beginning film, Gojira 1954, through a lot of the Toho films after that. Not so much the American side, but we'll get to that. Now, the convergence of talents that created the original Gojira and brought us ultimately Godzilla minus one through um, the legacy is just insane. There were so many talented people who worked on this thing. But let's start with where it came from. So King Kong, the original masterpiece from, I think, 1933, um, was a movie that... Uh, affected a lot of people and had a huge impact, but it didn't have a lot of imitators right away afterwards, like a lot of movies do. And it seems the reason for that is simply it would be too hard for anyone to imitate it. It was a relatively big budget movie. The process of the stop motion animation uh, process that they were using was hugely expensive and also hugely time-consuming. So trying to do like cheap rip-offs was the gap between the quality of that and what that, what the original King Kong was would have been too great. So there were sequels, but there weren't a lot of imitators the way there would be tons of imitators of Godzilla or their way, the way there would be tons of imitators of slashers like with John Carpenter's Halloween, which was a very cheap movie to make and very cheap to imitate. So you could do millions of them. The special thing that happened with King Kong was, unlike now when you can stream and get, you know, physical media dropped at your door with less than a day delivery, um, if you wanted to see a movie and it wasn't in the theaters, you were shit out of luck. No, no chance. You were at the whims of the whoever was releasing the movies. And... King Kong sat dormant for 20 years and then RKO reissued it to theaters in 1952. And it did better in 1952 than it did in its original 1933 release. It was one of the biggest box office draws of 1952, this nearly 20 year old movie. And it had an even bigger impact then. Think of the legendary Ray Harryhausen, who studied stop motion technique under Willis O'Brien of King Kong fame. And in 1953, the year after the reissue of King Kong, came out with The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It was a movie that showed how far special effects were advancing, especially by people who were um, worshippers of King Kong and what it was trying to achieve. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms made $5 million for Warner Brothers on an investment of less than half a million. And I don't know why do you 
calculate that in today's dollars, but $5 million back then is a lot less than it is now. And that King Kong re-release triggered a Japanese monster boom, particularly from Toho Studios. And I'm going to butcher all these names. I don't speak Japanese, obviously, so I'll do my best. But there's a gentleman named uh, Suburaya who became hugely into special effects. He's a co-creator of the Godzilla and Ultraman franchises and is considered one of the most influential figures in all of cinema. (laughs) He's known as the father of special effects or the master of monsters. His co-workers nicknamed him Smoke because he loved to use smoke in special effects. But what did this guy do? He acquired a personal print of King Kong and then sat in front of it night after night after night, examining it frame by frame to reverse engineer all the tricks and all the mysteries that it holds. His skills were so high that when he was forced to do propaganda films after the war ended, um, the people who saw the films thought that they were watching a documentary of an attack on Pearl Harbor, not realizing it was just all special effects. So he joins a bunch of other talented people to bring Gojira 1954 to life. The movie was originally just called, not title, just working title, was G for giant. Um, They landed on the name Gojira, which by a lot of accounts is a fusion of the English word gorilla with the Japanese word for uh, whale, which is Kujira. And then they bring in Ichiro Honda to direct this new monster movie. Now, remember I mentioned schizophrenia in this franchise. So Ichiro Honda was a highly acclaimed person in film who worked with Akira Kurosawa, who a lot of people consider the greatest director to ever live who directed masterpiece after masterpiece like Rashomon and Seven Samurai and Ron and one of my personal favorites, High and Low. But these are just amazing movies, not horror at all. It's kind of like if you were blending uh, Alfred Hitchcock with Steven Spielberg of the time. So Kurosawa was a giant of cinema and he loved Ichiro Honda and said that a lot of his Early successes came from the contributions of Honda shooting second footage and doing work for him. But Ichiro Honda also does Godzilla and then works on a bunch of Godzilla movies. And there was a book written about Japanese cinema that could not, a history of it, that could not get its mind around the fact that the guy that was making Godzilla versus Mothra was the same guy who was working with the great Akira Kurosawa. So they just assumed that it was two different people and that their names were close but not the same. So in the in the history book, he was Ichiro Honda for the Godzilla movies and Ichiro Honda for his Kurosawa work, and they were just like, that must be two people because there's no way one person could be doing working these projects at the same time. But he was. And this isn't the only time that people were astonished by the talent that was being brought to bear on this huge (laughs) killer lizard movie. So one of the parts, the part of Yamane, is played by Takashi Shimura. Shimura worked on a ton of Kurosawa's films. The New York Times, um, when, when it was reviewing the Kurosawa movie with Shimura in it called Ikiru, 
called him the best actor in the world. <laughs> so you imagine the, the the way I think of it is if you had gone to the theater to see Eloth Roth's uh, Eli Roth's um, Thanksgiving and um, the credits rolled and the screen came up and the star, the guy, the play, guy playing Carver was Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> that would be like an approximation of how people felt seeing um, Shimura show up in Godzilla. A guy named Ifukube was the um, composer of the music for Godzilla. And he's he was one of Japan's most respected classical music composers. And the music to Godzilla, as anyone knows, when that theme drops, is just an incredible sound and incredible experience. But I had an interesting thing happen to me when I left Godzilla Minus One. I just walked out. I was on cloud nine. I was so excited because it was like such a great experience. And I was humming the music to myself. And then on the way home, I pulled it up on my phone and played it. And I was humming it wrong. And I bet you're humming it wrong. (laughs) I simplified it. If you actually listen to it, it's a, a lot more complicated, a lot more swirling than you remember it. You just remember it as kind of like a march theme. And Ifakube was amazing at composing um, marches, um, did it a lot. But um, it's remarkable to me that there's a simple song that remains in your head that's still amazing that is like, uh, an egg nested in the larger egg of what the actual music sounds like. Go listen to the actual music and you'll see what I mean. So anyway, Gojira is amazing. And still, I got to admit, my favorite Godzilla movie, even over Godzilla Minus One. Although I might not always believe that. And I can fully see how um, you wouldn't see it that way and make Godzilla Minus One your number one Godzilla movie. Totally. I wouldn't fight it that hard. Um, I'm not going to go in depth into Gojira. That's not what I'm here for. I just kind of wanted to ground the idea of the Godzilla franchise in all of the quality and talent that it came from that is carried over to, to all after all this time, literally like decades and decades and decades of time with the same music. The Godzilla minus one gives us a lot of the same feel of the original Gojira, it's definitely closer in spirit to the original movie than a lot of the Godzilla follow-ups have been. Um, and it just blows my mind that um, that power is still generating out from this movie done so long ago and done so well. And I'm not, I'm not even going to like, I can't even don't have the time to talk about the suitmation and the amazing monster design and, and all of the great things about Gojira. I just, really wanted to point to how much talent like detonated <laughs> for lack of a better word back then that still carries uh, to this day to these um, sequels or whatever we want to call these follow-up movies that are happening now. Now there are just tons and tons of follow-up Godzilla movies in the Toho franchises. There's the millennium stuff. There's all kinds of like you, you can go down a rabbit hole. Criterion has an amazing kind of compilation of all these. I saw someone in our Facebook group talking about, they're so excited about minus one that they're going to like watch through a lot of those or all of them or go through the criterion collection, which I think is just an amazing way to spend a weekend um, or longer, <laughs> depending on how fast you go. Um, 
But I'm not going to do that. What my favorite um, Godzilla movie in the franchise, beyond that is Shin Godzilla. We'll get to that in a second chronologically. But right before that is GMK Giant Monsters uh, All Out Attack or whatever that crazy title is for that uh, movie. It's the one with Godzilla with the evil white eyes. Um, And it's, I mean, not as good a story as some of the other ones, but... um, Oh my God. It's like Godzilla unleashed. It's just Godzilla at his most malevolent, um, most menacing, um, up until I think, uh, minus one, or at least in parts, but it's just a really amazing, fun experience. It's got a bunch of the other famous monsters in it, obviously (laughs) all out monster attack would. Um, so it's really good, but there, there's just a lot of quality films in this franchise. I do want to talk for a second about Rodan. So the original Rodan came out in 1956, the end of 1956. It was also directed by Ishiro Honda. Um, It's a lot of the same team. Now, it's not a Godzilla movie. It's a kaiju movie, but it's not a Godzilla movie. It's the first color um, kaiju movie, I think, from Toho Studios. But this grim, evil little monster horror feature is one of my personal favorites. And it has some DNA that kind of gets carried over into Godzilla Minus One. So even though it's not technically a Godzilla movie, I mean, Rodan shows up in a lot of Godzilla movies and fights him and befriends him and all this, you know, crazy stuff. But um, the original. okay, let's talk about this for a second. There are two versions of this movie, as with a lot of these Toho movies. There's an Americanized version, version which is like four minutes shorter. Um, and there's some grim stuff in that four minutes that got cut out, including a couple who um, gets eaten alive by Rodan or one of the Rodans, since there are two of them, since they're mates. The American version has a voiceover narrative, which is... Um, it's okay. Like it's, it's, they've done a lot worse than this one. I personally prefer the very hard to find original Japanese version because it keeps most of Ifukube's music where the American movie version drops a lot of it. And it's, um, more violent, like I said, and it doesn't have a voiceover narration at the end. And I urge you if you haven't seen Rodan or if you've only seen the American version to go seek this out, I found it on internet archive. Um, I can put a link in the show notes, Um, but it is uh, remarkable watching it without the narration, telling you what you're supposed to be feeling and thinking. It becomes a lot starker and more tragic. But the thing to know about Rodan is it's a horror movie. Like a lot of these like monster fest movies, a lot of these like, you know, Godzilla final wars types of movies, they drift further and further away from the horror. They get more into the silly, more into the comical way into the over the top. They're more just about special effects. There's a, there's a grimness and a creepiness to, um, just a couple movies in the Godzilla franchise. Minus one definitely has it. Um, Shin Godzilla has it in a very small part, but it's such a unique movie. We'll get to that. 
Um, and then Rodan, I think of all of them, even more than Gojira, is a straight up horror film. But I think Rodan is a very special film. It's the first kaiju from Toho in color. And the effects hold up, even though they're done in color. And the ending is particularly sad. It It's weird. It hits the... In, it's like the monster version of uh, how the Bill and Frank thing hit in Last of Us. Like in the emotional impact. It's one doomed character, or in this case, one doomed Rodan. And the other one who refuses to go on without the the other. Um, and it really pioneers the sympathy for the monster, which you get the tiniest whiff of at the end of Gojira, but not really. I mean, Godzilla's <laughs> ruthlessly stamping out uh, Tokyo and uh, is not sympathetic <laughs> at all, uh, except for in, I guess, the Frankenstein sense, like didn't ask to be irradiated by atomic power and like raised up but um it's much clearer in rodan that there's something almost like human in the emotional quality of what the monsters are doing at the end um and that's really going to play out the sympathy angle for the monster through the rest of the godzilla franchise at least intermittently now as for the american garbage (laughs) not to be too harsh but just compared to what Toho brought, it's kind of amazing that with all the budget and money and special effects prowess of that could be thrown at the American productions, that they never there's it, there's a dozen <laughs> Toho movies at least. If you were to rank all the Godzilla movies, all whatever 38, 40, whatever they are now, um, an American one wouldn't crack the top ten for sure. And that's kind of a shame. It's a lot of missed opportunities. And it's not that they're all bad. I mean, the well, they're all bad comparatively, but it's not that they're all bad all through and through. Like the, I think of, so let's see, we got the Matthew Broderick one, whatever. Then we got um, Godzilla versus Kong. We've got um, the original, the, well, like the original, the Godzilla, the Gareth Edward one that is so dark no one can see it from 2014, I think. And then we have the execrable Godzilla King of Monsters. I, I I can't. That movie makes my skin crawl. It's so bad. And it's a shame because some of the effects are beautiful. And the the way they do Rodan and uh, Ghidorah, um, really, really good. And it's not like Godzilla is bad in that either. It's just I don't even know what they're trying to do with the storylines and the plots and the dialogue is ridiculous. And the... The scale is always so off. <laughs> like there's, I'll never forget that absurd scene when they first release Monster Zero in Godzilla King of Monsters. And it's in that that icy domain and Vera up in the sky, like controlling <laughs> Monster Zero with bird calls or whatever. Um, and you've got like this group of people, including her husband or the father of their child or whatever who's running around on the ice and like Godzilla and Ghidorah throwing each other all around slamming into the ice which would just 
obliterate like mile long blocks of the ice. But even though you can clearly see the monsters falling like just feet away from the characters, the ground just shakes and rumbles and they get thrown off their feet a little bit. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. The, the scale is so off. The It's so illogical. <laughs> um, and then the, the biggest crime of all to me in the American ones is or at least the the last two. I mean, I, the Gareth Edward one is is Edwards one is probably the best of them. Um, it's just I didn't particularly like the Godzilla design in that one. Um, I did like how they did the atomic breath and electrify the tail, I guess, but um, it, it's just impossible to see, so it's no fun that way. And the Mutos were terrible, but. The biggest crime is in the Godzilla versus Kong and then Godzilla King of Monsters. The the Godzilla and in the King Kong one, they keep having to get like restarted somehow in this weirdo way by the humans. They fall on the ground, knocked out, and then the humans have to come along and like jump their hearts or juice them up with like aggression, radiation power or whatever. Which is so dumb. I mean, these kaiju are not, they're not like Tesla Cybertrucks that have driven past their range. <laughs> they're not like some poorly designed like thing that um, it just breaks down and then a whole bunch of like experts have to come and like get them back on their feet. That's just not the feel that these monsters should have. But for some reason, the movies keep doing it. Now, Shin Godzilla is amazing absolutely incredible movie i know that it's divisive i can see why it's divisive because there's a lot of talking a friend of mine who was born in japan raised in japan um she told me once that all the committee scenes or a lot of the committee scenes in shin godzilla play to her the way the cabin in the woods um bradley whitford scenes play to us it's just people in the control room who think they have control and they don't. And that it comes across as like kind of comical and kind of tragic, which I can totally understand. I don't mind it so much because um, I do like slow burns from time to time. I'm, I'm pretty patient <laughs> movie watcher. Um, and it's, it really heightens when the mayhem does break loose um, the quieter kind of like in between scenes give them a little more impact. I could totally see that driving a viewer crazy. Like it's if if you're geared another way and like you're like, why am I listening to like one committee meeting after another committee meeting? Um, I get it. It's kind of like Zen to me. It was kind of like a Zen garden to me. It was it was calming in a weird way because um, I knew they weren't going to figure it out. <laughs> like it was clear. That they were way behind um, Godzilla. And I like, you know, a lot of other people have problems with Godzilla's initial design. They find it ludicrous. I remember I watched this movie with a couple people and they burst out laughing when Godzilla first came on the screen before he evolves. And I could get that, too. It does look uh, vaguely ridiculous. The thing that sold me on that was um, we haven't seen Godzilla evolve that way in the course of a movie before I thought it was cool, but it was all like the blood and gore splashing out of him through like his gills or like whatever the sides of him were just sloshing around. That was so kind of gross and disturbing 
that I, I, I was more focused on that than just like how kind of a touch of goofiness the design had, but it all comes clear anyway, once Godzilla evolves into the form we recognize. And then the amazing kind of like haunting music matching up with the full force unleashing of his atomic um, abilities. Um, Cause it's not just his breath anymore. It's emerging from his whole body um, is just a gorgeous scene. Um, and I really like how it ended. I like with the ambiguous mysterious shot of his tail kind of frozen and evolving into something else. I liked the, the weird way they left such a big movie um, hanging in space like that in the air, like, Anything could be next. But now we come to the main event. Godzilla Minus One, written and directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Um, it's the fifth film in the Godzilla franchise's uh, Rewa era. And this movie is just a dark masterpiece. Um, it's funny because I know a lot of us, I've, I've had this discussion many, many times with horror fans and horror groups about kind of that urge to give up in a horror movie. Like you're watching the character go through things and you're like, you know, why don't they just, just uh, get off this mortal coil? <laughs> like just give up. They're not going to make it. It's going to be easier to die. Um, you're outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned. Um, and, you know, never, I think in at least, not in a long time have I watched a movie where it was so apparent that the main character just wanted to give up and <laughs> just wanted to to like like end it and um and kept getting dragged back in and back in and back in some more and it just seemed for more no purpose and then there's huge spoilers coming here um even at the end um it, which was a fake out that worked on me because I honestly thought it was going to be a self-sacrificial thing when he flies his plane uh, into Godzilla's mouth. Um, stunning moment in the theater. Like the crowd I was with stopped breathing. There was no sound. Everyone was waiting to see what was going to happen. Um, and the fact that we've been on this ride with this character that um, as as people who watch a lot of horror movies and a lot of horror TV shows, um, we see characters go through a lot. So it takes a lot for us to be sitting in our seats watching something and just be like, someone just let this guy go. <laughs> let this guy put this guy out of his misery. And the opposite happens. And it's so inspirational the way they turn this story around. It's amazing it's like it's like taking like a huge truck like an 18 wheeler and just like spinning it around 180 with no room to work with like a magic trick like you don't even know how they did it and all of a sudden this is the character that you just never want to see go you want to see this guy live to be a hundred um and uh it's just like the emotional core of the film and it's like so authentically earned because um, he does like bad things. I think he is too hard on himself in the one case because it's clear early on in the movie when his um, companions are urging him to open fire on Godzilla 
that it's a suicidal choice. As a matter of fact, when they do it, 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 it turns out to be the end for all of them. So, like, the fact that he didn't do it, um, I think, is less cowardly and more just wise than his compatriots and himself after the fact really see it. He sees himself as purely a coward, really purely not, you know, following through. And the same with the kamikaze thing, which is just an amazing layered subtext to this movie that I didn't think if you'd shown it to me on paper, I would have thought it's not going to work and it's unwise to try to do in a movie because of all the emotional freight that comes with that idea of the whole um, kamikaze uh, prospect. But regardless of how you're judging this character up until the point where he adopts the baby semi-accidentally, he doesn't do anything that indicates to either him or us that he's going to be able to carry like the heroic freight the movie's going to ask him to carry. And even he knows that. Um, and he's terrified all the time. <laughs> he has constant nightmares and he's apprehensive and anxious. Um, and it, like I said, he's super hard on himself. So he's sort of emotionally eating himself alive as the movie goes. We're not dealing with like an Ash Williams or Nancy Thompson um, kind of character here. And I just loved what they did with it and how real they kept it. So the movie starts with this character, Shikshima, who's pretending he has mechanical problems with his plane. He lands on Odo Island. Um, he f didn't carry out his kamikaze mission. And while he's on the island, Godzilla arrives um, and kills everyone there except for him and one other person, a mechanic who's going to turn out to be really, really important uh, later. Um, he escapes off the island. He goes to live in Tokyo He's working as a minesweeper. He's with uh, a woman that he's not marrying, but they're clearly emotionally bonded named Noriko. And then they have a baby that they've adopted who's not related, related to either of them named um, Akiko. Right. So there they are in Tokyo and they're blown out house in the aftermath of World War Two with everything destroyed around them. His parents are gone. And then Godzilla gets atomic fueled and gets larger and more powerful and while Shikshima is out with his his friends, the crew, like the kid and the doc, um, these characters who are like really um, funny and interesting, um, they make quite the collection. They come across Godzilla again. Um, matter of fact, I think they were sent there, if I remember, <laughs> to to stall Godzilla, which was like an insane, again, yet another <laughs> like suicide mission. Um, and they hit Godzilla with a mine. Um, Godzilla gets taken on by this heavy battleship or cruiser named uh, Taco that gets called like a uh, a beast by one of one of uh, I think the kid um, of the crew, and Godzilla just wipes that ship out with its power and its uh, heat ray. And then a little bit later, Godzilla makes landfall in Japan, attacking Ginza, where Noriko works. Um, Shikshima goes to search for her. And then we get one of the most amazing moments in 2023 cinema when Godzilla um, stamps out, attacks the, uh, the military attacking him, and then unleashes its heat ray 
with just this incredibly bleak framing shot after the fact. And I love how they do this. I don't think it's ever been done this way in a Godzilla movie before where he unleashes the heat ray. And then the next thing we see is the blast effect, the wind, but we don't see the direction he sent the ray. We just see the um, explosion of heat and fire which takes Noriko out completely. She pushes um, Shikshima into a safe place at the last second with her, like her just reflexes and gets blown off the map. And then the camera comes back around and we get Godzilla back in frame. We haven't seen him or the Ray. We're just seeing the effect, which is very similar to some of the things that happened. Rodan Rodan doesn't destroy things by touching them. He's not stumbling into buildings, stamping buildings or stamping people like Godzilla does. It's all like the wind that comes from his wings. And in this case, we see all the destruction first. We don't see the ray. There's no glow. (laughs) And we don't see Godzilla. And then the camera swivels back around and we get Godzilla back in frame. And then way off in the distance where he first did his heat ray, we see a mushroom cloud and it is absolutely bone chilling. And then we see sort of the assemblage of a plan to take on Godzilla. And this is a really meaningful sequence, even though this is like Shin Godzilla, a lot of talking and not much action at this point. And it's because it's, this has been in the DNA of a lot of the Godzilla franchise from the start. It's definitely in Rodan, where a lot of the heroes are just the original miners who were mining underground and disturbed the creatures in the first place, and now they got to problem-solve how to deal with it. In Shin Godzilla, the government is completely incompetent. And in Godzilla Minus One, you have these people who served in the war, but they're not officially part of anything, and they band together sidestepping the government and sidestepping the military to take Godzilla on on their own. It's like the largest possible incarnation of the Losers Club (laughs) or like a Stranger Things kind of vibe. Um, And it's hard to notice because it's a lot of like a lot of people and it's it feels very military because most of them are ex-vets or just out of the war. But this isn't sanctioned by the government. This is a plan uh, by the people for the people to protect the people. And that's such a great element of this movie. And they come up with this completely convoluted and insane and clearly doomed to fail plan. And if you've ever seen the excellent HBO series Chernobyl, a lot of this has a very Chernobyl vibe of like, People who are, you know, just trying to problem solve on their own, given like impossibly vague information, contradictory information. And they're just trying to come up with like the best plan to get them from like today to tomorrow. (laughs) And their plan is completely absurd. It's to sink Godzilla with bubbles and then raise him with like, (laughs) like a air, like a trampoline. And use the the rapid explosive decompression that happens underwater to, to destroy him. And one of the characters even says, you know, when they say we're going to use the power of the sea to destroy Godzilla, one of the characters even says, but he's a creature of the sea. <laughs> like, can we defeat 
a creature of the sea with the sea? And they're like, yeah, we think so. But we as the audience members know that, no, that's not going to work. And it's going to be an incredibly complicated plan to pull off anyway. Um, everything's going to have to go just right. Um, there's like multiple ships involved. There's like hundreds of people. Like, it's just, there's no way that this is going to work. And I think we all kind of know it. But meanwhile, you have this side plot where, or at least parallel plot, where Shikshima, who who is a fighter pilot, was a kamikaze pilot, um, gets access to this really unique plane. Um, I forget what name they give it. It It was kind of like a ghost plane. It was like a rear wing fighter, like a prototype. And it was some of my favorite shit in this movie was just watching the mechanics work on this thing and watching Shikshima stand next to this plane. It just felt like, you know, whatever they were doing over there with like the bubble apocalypse plan, like this is, we knew this was the thing, right? So they load this up and then Shikshima, you know, he, he, they, and I don't want to sell this short. I just didn't want the podcast to go out too long. So I won't dwell on this, but there is a really cool sequence where Shikshima contacts that original mechanic. I forget his name. The one who was on Odo Island with them at the first place, who he felt like uh, Shikshima was betrayed all of them by refusing to fire his guns at Godzilla and he gets him back in like the most costly, physically perilous way to Shikshima himself. Gets his ass beat um, by via sending out a bunch of letters, um, and he gets this guy back into the fold. And then this movie goes full Dark Knight Rises. So if you've seen Dark Knight Rises, you know that. Like there's the the bat wing or the thing that's going to fly the nuclear device off. And we've got like the Morgan Freeman being like the autopilot doesn't work, like whatever. And they're doing sort of the same trick here with us um, where the mechanic is introducing Shikshima to the finished plane. the Because it was like a rusty, you know, a skeleton of itself when they first found it. But he's got this thing's humming. He's got it ready to go, weapon of war. And he tells Shikshima, I put bombs in it like you requested. And there's two important things you need to know. And the first is, this is how you release the bomb safety before you fly the plane into Godzilla's mouth. And then he's about to tell him the second important thing, and the camera cuts away. And I don't know about you guys, if you've seen it, But, like, I didn't put together the ending totally. What actually is going to happen totally took me by surprise. So it was really deftly handled, at least as far as I was concerned. Because if they'd lingered one second too long on that, I would have snagged on it and probably figured out what the second thing is. But um, it was just executed so well that I didn't. I didn't even keep thinking about it. I just kind of followed along with the the flow of the movie. So it came as a complete surprise to me at the end. But uh, we've got this plane ready to go. And this is the thing. Like, Shishima gets to go back up in the air. He gets to redeem himself for all the times that he thinks he was a coward, that he let his dead um, compatriots down. He's carrying around their pictures with him, his pictures of their families, like, crushed with guilt. And we're like, all right, well, he gets to finally execute his kamikaze mission. And then there's the showdown between 
the the ships and the plane and Godzilla, and it's amazing. And there's, they even work at like a Dunkirk moment where a bunch of little ships show up to help, and then the plan predictably collapses under its own ridiculous weight. <laughs> the go figure bubbles aren't going to be the end of Godzilla, and neither is slowly towing them to the surface um, with your ships. And then if they thought they were going to have the power to tear them apart. Um, you're probably forgetting about his death ray <laughs> that he can shoot. Um, so he's about to wipe them all out. And Shikshima heroically rams his plane, ignites the bomb, hits Godzilla square in the mouth. And then his hopeful little tiny white parachute appears in the sky. And, you know, a lot of the problem with movies that try to touch an audience emotionally is they over-explain it. That's what the voiceover narration at the end of Rodan does. They're trying to tell you what to think. And Dark Knight Rises was also, um, it, it actually it did this less well for all Christopher Nolan's talents. And small enough side note here. Batman died at the end of Dark Knight Rises. I don't know what kind of Mandela effect shit is happening where I see people react to this movie or I talk to people who have watched it or I watch it with friends and they're like, oh, Batman, you know, went to have lunch with Anne Hathaway and Michael Caine showed up and like everything was great. Robin took over and, you know, you know, the autopilot was was fine or whatever. And Batman, like whatever. <laughs> Batman died. I'm sorry. He's dead at the end of Batman. Uh, Dark Knight Rises, sorry. Um, it doesn't thematically make sense if he doesn't die. He says in the movie, when Anne Hathaway is like, you've given these people everything, Batman says, I haven't given them everything yet. Like, the only thing that means is his life. And if he did walk away and just go live his life and pass it over to Robin... He could have done that a million other times. He could have done that at the end of Dark Knight when they were chasing him. And he could have been like vanished into the ether and they're hunting him, but they can't ever quite find him. And he's just like having lunch with his new girlfriend like somewhere else. And Michael Caine's happy because uh, uh, Christian Bale's not risking his life every day anymore. Like if he couldn't walk away then, why can he walk away now? What's the nothing changed? <laughs> So now when there's a bunch of crime and like mayhem and Gotham while he's, you know, <laughs> drinking Perrier and, you know, he eating hors d'oeuvres over there, like whatever. Now he's fine with it when he wasn't before. It doesn't make sense. He's dead. Sorry. Side, side issue. So Shikshima lives. Godzilla sinks, breaks apart in the ocean. Um, and the audience that I was with at the theater, I saw people openly crying like, just the fact that Shikshima chose to live, chose to go to his adopted child, go back to his adopted child. Amazing. And by the way, I didn't even bring up this other character that's been taking care of Akiko the whole time, which is totally my bad because she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but she's also an amazing character. She gets a telegram after Shikshima leaves for his death mission, and she runs down there because we don't know what the telegram's contents are. And that's one last surprise for us, which is Noriko, um, his, his now love, I'm assuming, somehow dis su survived the Ginza attack destruction when she flew off into the air. Maybe she got blown into the water. 
Maybe she's managed to land in a patch of trees. I don't know. Um, but she's alive. And then she turns to Shikshima and asks him if his war is finally over. And all of this is amazing. And a lesser movie would end this so happy, right? Which is what Dark Knight Rises tried to do and ended too happy, right? Like too many characters having a too good lunch. Robin, like, you know, walking to the Batcave being like, oh, this is mine. Um, music swells, like all's well, it ends well. But there are hints of darkness at the end of of Godzilla minus one. The first one is this really weird, dark stain that's kind of creeping under the skin of Noriko's neck. Very macabre, sinister touch in the movie. And then the chunk of Godzilla that sinks to the bottom of the ocean and then on the last shot starts to heal itself and regenerate as that incredible Godzilla theme um, swells and kicks in to to walk us out of the theater into the night with uh, our eyes filled with one of the very best movies of the last few years. I absolutely love Godzilla Minus One. And because this is a joint effort of the community, um, I asked a few times for people in the community um, what they thought of this movie. And I got some great responses. And I was looking for patterns in the responses. And one of the ones that I thought was the coolest and most interesting was there was an interesting like age um, overlap, kind of like it was kind of like rallying different age groups together uh, to root for Godzilla minus one. I'll give you an example. Um, on one of the posts, Maria Vaccarino responded to my question about Godzilla minus one by saying, I went with my seven-year-old after it was over. I said, buddy, did you like it? He goes, I didn't like it. I loved it. A very touching comment came from Elizabeth Hay, who said, Godzilla is a franchise that punches me in my heart. My oldest son loved Godzilla. He was so excited about Godzilla versus Kong. He was killed in a workplace accident a couple years before it was released. Every time a new movie comes out, I'm hit by overwhelming sadness. Still, I will go see it, and I know I will feel his presence strongly, which is just amazing and heartbreaking, and I'm sorry that happened to you, Elizabeth. Um, Mac Sin said, I took my godson to see it over the weekend. He isn't really into Godzilla and didn't even know this movie existed until I asked him if he wanted to see it with me. We both loved it. This one isn't like a generational bridge thing. It's just an age thing. But Timothy Williams said, my first foreign film in the theater at age 50. Well worth the wait. LOL loved that the story focused on survivor remorse. A couple other great reactions here were watching it. It felt like someone just wrote an amazing movie about trauma in the aftermath of war that, oh, by the way, has a visually stunning giant monster in it that also metaphorically embodies trauma. Also, the sound design for Godzilla Minus One deserves every award imaginable. Lewis Walker said, I heard on a podcast the director turned it down for almost a decade because he felt his team's tech wasn't up to speed with his vision. And then he finally said, yes, he didn't want to create an inferior product. That's a dedication to your art. Henry N said, just watched Corridor Crew's exclusive interview with Yamazaki. Amazingly passionate director and a true artist at heart. Michael Raffle said, I was shocked at how well the characters were developed. I was seriously invested in them. 
But that part where Godzilla fully reveals himself in Ginza and his theme plays for the first time is absolutely electrifying. I was kind of rooting for him in that moment. That's the Rodan effect. Madison Bundan said the first time the score, if you know, you know, drops insane theater reaction. My brother and I looked at each other in absolute awe. The character development was perfect and it visually blew my mind. The shot of Godzilla's face halfway through the water as he glided towards you. Perfect. Kenneth Graman said, I can honestly say this is the first time in a Godzilla movie that had scenes where I held my breath and I'm the same age as Godzilla. And last one, and particularly pertinent to this podcast, Ku Vang said, Love the depiction of Godzilla in this movie compared to others. Had more of a horror feel to it, which was pretty awesome. Have to give props to the atomic breath as well. First time they've done it like that, and it was absolutely awesome. The visuals and sound effects were perfect for the moment. Now, the thing I have to tell you here is, we've been doing this a long time together, you and I, almost a, almost a year now. And the community has been around a lot longer than that, along with the social media pages. And this is the first time ever that I scanned through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments and didn't see a single negative one. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't one in there. I I don't have the time to read every single thing that's posted in response, but I do my best to cover a lot of ground and I see a lot of what's said in there. And I, I've seen movies where there are few negative comments, but it doesn't matter what I post. It doesn't matter. I could talk about John Carpenter's Halloween. I could talk about Hereditary. I could talk about almost any horror movie I could think of. The only one that I've never seen a single negative comment about is John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, but to have a movie new in the year of our Lord 2023 come out, and not have an audience at least semi-divided, not have any comments in there talking about, oh, this is mid or like whatever, just is mind-blowing. <laughs> so hats off to Toho Studios and the whole team that brought us this exquisite late-year pleasant surprise. All right, that's it for Godzilla, my beloved Gojira, and the whole franchise for this week. I'm going to try something new with the podcast here. Um, I, If you give a review to Horror Weekly on Apple where you can actually write a review and it's not just like leaving stars, which is the only thing you can do on Spotify. If in the body of the review you name check a horror film that you want me to talk about or cover on the podcast in some detail, um, include that in the review. If you just put the name, you could say my favorite horror movie is, or you can say like, you know, talk about this. You can you, you literally just be five stars and put the name and say nothing else, whatever you want to do. Uh, I'd appreciate kind words. If you enjoy what we do, if you don't enjoy it, um, I guess I'll have to take the negative words if you put them there. Um, but that's the name of the game. But um, and if there are multiple ones, um, I will just um, <laughs> to to make it clear, I, I will be less interested in talking about a really known property. So if you say the original Nightmare on Elm Street or Jaws or something like that, um, there's just already been so much said about those. And it's unlikely that I'm going to have anything fresh and interesting to say about something where so much ground is covered. But if it's a 
slightly lesser known or less spoken of uh, horror film or even TV show episode, whatever you think, um, and you really want to have it covered on this podcast, drop it in that review, put in the name, and um, I'll definitely take a look and try to do my best to do all the ones that uh, pop up. I know I get suggestions from the Facebook page, but I recognize that that's where the bulk of our online activity is. And to be honest, there's a lot of people that aren't on Facebook and it's not fair to be just exclusionary, even though that's, I mean, that's my home base and (laughs) I love it there. And that's um, where it's always going to be primarily the community activity um, just because it's been so amazing and emotionally rewarding over there. But um, definitely if you, there's other ways now to reach and give suggestions of this podcast. I want to broaden it out. So leaving it in a review is definitely a way that will get my attention. So if you're sitting on a gem of a movie that people don't talk enough about, enough about like intruder or uh, return of the living dead three or whatever, whatever comes to mind, tombs of the blind dead, uh, drop it in there. I'd love to take a look at it. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. And until next Wednesday, Have a great horror week.